We are glad that you are here. We welcome everybody that's watching us online today. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we hope you'll let us know. Uh, jot, jot a note in there and let us know you're watching us, and uh, no matter where you're at in the world, let us know you're watching us. We're glad to have you with us, and uh, just want to mention to our CFA family, uh, make sure you get a copy of this, especially the bottom side of the first page. The bottom side of the first page changes every week, and so... Uh, there's some special announcements there. My brother is actually going to be here this week. He's driving in today, and he will be teaching Wednesday night, and Holy Week services are going to be held here every day at noon. We are privileged and honored to be able to host the Benton County Ministerial Alliance Holy Week services this year, noon every day with a meal to follow. So if you're able to join us, uh, we, have, we would appreciate you doing that. Pastors from all over the area are going to be um, speaking each day, and so we're looking forward to that. And we read that scripture at the beginning about how Jesus gave himself for us, and our response is to give in return. So whatever we have to give, tithes and offerings, whatever we give over and above that, uh, we are giving in response to everything Jesus gave to us. So your gifts are worship. Don't allow it to just become a perfunctory digital transaction on the app or on the web or passing by the baskets back there. It's always worship. So however you give, whenever you give, commit it to the Lord in prayer as you do. And we thank you for your faithfulness, CFA family, in doing that. And, and we know that it is a response to how much Jesus gave for us when he gave his life. Father, again, we're looking to you today. As we said, Lord, we want to hear from your word. And we're in this series where... Lord, I know that, that for some this series may seem more instructional and informational than inspirational, but Lord, we want to be inspired to understand. We want to be inspired to comprehend, Lord. We want, we want our knowledge to increase. So I pray even, Lord, that you would give gifts of knowledge, the spiritual gift of knowledge as we study your word and we want to learn how to read your word, we want to learn how to understand your word. We want to know why this word has been given to us, even as it was given to the prophets and the apostles and those who wrote it so long ago, it has been given to us. Lord, we don't want to take it for granted. We don't want to just skim. We don't want to just eat little nuggets. We want to be able to eat full meals on our own. So teach us your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today... We're entering into the second part of this longer series. We've gone through the first four messages was the first part, striking the match, hoping that we would get a hunger to know the Word of God deeper than we had before. And so we're going to be moving now into an overview of the various sections, the different types of literature in the Bible, the different ways God spoke to his people and why we still have it today and how we can read it and understand it today. So we're beginning in the Old Testament and we're going to talk today about the Old Testament books of history and there are some common questions that arise. And you've probably run into these before either with folks that maybe are not part of the church or they're kind of on the edge of the church or maybe even folks that are very very active in the church. Sometimes the question comes up, well, why do I need to read the Old Testament? Why do I need to know the Old Testament? Isn't the Old Testament past? Isn't the Old Testament done with? Didn't Jesus fulfill it all? Why do I even need to bother? How does the Old Testament apply to my life? And another question that comes along sometimes is, is, is God really in control or does chaos and confusion reign? We have issues in our lives. We pray prayers. They don't always get answered the way we want. Sometimes God seems silent. We see the great confusion in our world and in our own culture, and we say, is is God really in control, or does chaos and confusion reign? Is it all random? And there are theological answers all over the board to those questions. Can we have confidence? Can we have confidence that God is sovereign, in control, and that God is trustworthy, even in the midst of immediate tragedies, even in the midst of incomparable suffering that goes on? Even in the midst of the moral dysfunction of our leaders and our culture and the accelerating economic and political crises we have, can we have confidence 
that God is in control. Who is in control? And which parts of the Bible really help us to live right and understand the times in which we live today? Well, the historical books of the Old Testament, the historical books of the Old Testament, often called the Hebrew Bible, tells us that God is in control. And the stories, the stories of the Old Testament are an example of how God works with us. The stories of the Old Testament are an example of how God teaches us to live the very best, most productive, most enjoyable life that anyone can ever live. So the Old Testament books of history teach us that God is in control. And he does want you to have a great life. That's borne out in these Old Testament stories. Now, all or part of the following books are Old Testament books of history. You've got the book of Genesis, of course. You've got Exodus. There is history in Exodus. You've got history in Leviticus. Next slide, please. You've got history in the book of Numbers. You've got history in the book of Deuteronomy. If our slides are working, give me my next slide. It's froze. It's froze. It's froze. Genesis. There you go. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Some of those are books of law, which we're going to be talking about next week, but there's also a lot of history in those books. Joshua, Judges, Ruth. 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and even parts of the prophetic books, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, are books of history. They got historical stories in them that we need to know. History is actually the most common type of literature found in the Bible. History, stories, most common type of literature found in the Bible. So Psalm 78, beginning to read with verse 1, says, Oh, my people... Listen to my instructions. Open your ears to what I am saying, for I will speak to you in a parable. Stories. I will teach you hidden lessons from our past. Stories that we have heard and known. Stories our ancestors handed down to us. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about His power, and his mighty wonders, for he issued his laws to Jacob, he gave his instructions to Israel, he commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children, so that the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born, even the children not yet born, so they in turn will teach their own children so each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Then they will not be like their ancestors, stubborn, rebellious, and unfaithful, refusing to give their hearts to God. That's the point. That's the point of the Old Testament books of history. That's the point of the stories. We cannot neglect to continue to tell the stories to our children. Tell the Old Testament stories to your kids. Tell the Old Testament stories to your grandkids so they will know them. And if you think there is no hope for our generation, every generation gets worse. There's no hope for our culture. This tells us that if we know the stories and we pass the stories down, they won't be as bad as us. Isn't that good news? Isn't that hope? We pass the stories down. But we've got to know the stories and we've got to keep reading the stories. So when you're reading the historical passage of the Bible, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you, ask yourself two questions. We've got them in your notes. Keep those handy. When you're reading Old Testament stories, ask yourself these questions. One, what was God doing in this story? What was God doing in this story? What was he doing for those people in the Old Testament story? What was he doing for those people who really lived? They were real people. These are true stories. These are not novels. True historical stories. They lived on this earth. They encountered God in the real world and in real time. What was God doing in the story? Well, one thing God does, we learn from these Old Testament stories, is, is builds faith. And we, when we know the Old Testament stories of history, it is going to build our faith. You want your faith to become stronger? Don't just say, Lord, increase my faith. Read the Old Testament stories. And they will increase your faith because God was building their faith as he worked in their lives in these stories. If God has saved people from suffering and trouble in the past, don't you think he can do it again in the present? For example, there's the Old Testament story of Hagar. An awesome story. 
a little bit of a racy story. It would probably get at least a PG-13 or a rated R if it was done in a movie format. But you've got the story of Hagar. What's, what's the story of Hagar? God comes to Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you. Look at the stars of the sky. I'm going to give you as many descendants as the stars of the sky. Look at, look at the sands on the seashore. I'm going to give you as many descendants as the sand on the seashore. And so Abraham and Sarah are waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for God to fulfill his promise. And he doesn't. And time is passing on, and the biological clock is ticking, and they don't have any kind of doctor to tell them whether they're functioning properly or not. So Sarah comes up with this crazy idea, which was actually somewhat acceptable in their culture, certainly not acceptable in our culture today. Just ask Arnold Schwarzenegger. This thing got him in trouble. So his Sarah says, well, God's made this promise. We must have something to do with it. So, so take my maid, and she'll be like a surrogate mother. You know, no, no test tubes or needles or anything like that, but she'll be the you know, surrogate mother the natural way. But her child will be our child, and this is how God will fulfill that promise. And then Hagar had the child, and Sarah was bitter. So Hagar, the maid, went in to the godly, godly man Abraham. They had sexual relations. Hagar gets pregnant, and... And Sarah's just not happy then either. She's so mad. She's so upset. She's so bitter. She treats Hagar horribly. She abuses her to the point where Hagar runs away. And Hagar is out there, and she's, she's in a desert, and she, she's out there, and she's pregnant, and she's run away. And she thinks her life is over. What happens? God comes. God comes to this poor abused, put in a relationship she didn't want, put in a relationship she didn't seek to have a baby that she's supposed to give up. Now she's running away because she's been abused even more. God comes to her and he says, I see you. She ended up calling him the God who sees because he saw her in her trouble. He saw her in her pain and he said, you go back. You have the baby. He said, I will take care of you. Twelve years later, God does that mighty miracle, brings Abraham and Sarah's old dead bodies back to life. So then Sarah becomes pregnant, and Isaac is born, and they know that's the miracle. That's the child of promise. And so Sarah starts to treat them worse, and Sarah sees that Ishmael, Hagar's son, is treating Isaac horribly and, and, uh, and beating up on him. And, all. and, and so so. Sarah says, I'm not going to put up with this anymore. And Sarah says to Abraham, you got to send him away. It grieved Abraham's heart. Ishmael was his son. He's 11 or 12 years old now. And God says, go ahead, do what Sarah says, send him away. I will take care of him. And so Hagar goes with her son. And again, she's out in that desert and she's starving and there's nothing to drink and she thinks she's going to die. And so she puts the boy over here under a tree so there's shade for him. And she goes off at a distance so she won't be able to see him die. What happens? God comes to her again. God comes to her again in her pain, in her loneliness, in her confusion, in her desperation. In the moment when she is ready to just give up, lay down and die and let her son die, God comes and he says, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to take care of the boy and I'm not just going to make one nation out of him, I'm going to make 12 nations out of him. And God fulfilled every bit. What does that story tell us? It tells us God sees us in our pain. He sees us in our confusion. He sees us when everything is lost. He sees us when all hope is gone. He sees us when we're depressed he sees us when we think we have nothing more to offer our kids when we think our kids are going to die and when we are just ready to lay down and die ourselves god sees us don't miss the old testament stories don't neglect the old testament stories by the way it also helps you figure out why there's so much mess in the world today because the sons of ishmael are still picking on the sons of isaac the nations of the Arab world are the sons of Ishmael and Israel are the sons of Isaac and that confusion is still going on. You got the story of the Exodus. You got Moses leading the people out and he's done miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle and then they get to the Red Sea and there's nothing but sea in front of them and there's a big mountain here and there's a big mountain here and Pharaoh's army comes closing in from behind and all the people, regardless of all the miracles God has already done, they quickly forget about those miracles and they start griping and complaining about Moses. You brought us out here to die. God says, 
Hand your stick out over the water. Moses holds his stick out over the water. The waters part. The Israelites go through on dry ground. They turn around and look back. The army's coming through, and God causes the water to come over, and he wins the victory for them. God will be there when you need him to be there for you, even when you seem trapped on every side. Old Testament stories are awesome. The wars of Israel. History, history builds our faith. History also shows us that God is in control. With the mess we got in our country, with the mess that's going on in the world, with this leader and that leader and this war and that war and all the stuff that's going on, history shows us God is in control. The historical stories of the Old Testament show us that God God is initiating and God is working out His plan. We don't understand it because it's His plan and we often have a different plan. A different plan, but he's working out his plan for human history. Story after story, event after event describes God. God is the shaper of human history. Francis Schaeffer said he is there and he is not silent. God is present and he is not silent. God is not surprised by any event that takes place. Nothing takes him off guard. Nothing knocks him off his throne. God knows where history is going, and he knows where history is going to end. And so the stories show us that God acts to guide. We see him guiding nations. We see God guiding the nation of Israel. He guided the nation of Babylon to come and invade Israel. He guided the nation of Persia to take over the nation of Babylon. He guided the nation of Greece. People talk about history. Alexander the Great, one of the greatest leaders in all the world. God used Alexander the Great to set up the world so that Jesus Christ could come on the scene. And then the Roman Empire. God guided all of that. He not only guides nations. The Old Testament stories tell us that God guides our families. He guided the family of Adam. He was directly involved. He guided the family of Noah. When the flood came, he was directly involved. After the flood, God gave them guidance and direction and showed them the way. He guided the family of Abraham, showed him where to go, showed him where to live, showed him how to escape the famine, showed him what to do with his kids. He guided the family of Samuel. He guided the family of David. And he guides not only nations and families, but the Old Testament story shows that he guides us as individuals. He'll give you direction because he guided Joseph. And he guided Daniel, and he guided Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he guided the prophets, and he guided the kings. So history builds our faith. History shows us that God is in control, and history also shows us God's desire for relationship. The Old Testament books of history show you that God wants a relationship with you. He wants a real, living, active relationship with you. Through the story of Adam, what do we learn? He created human beings to be co-rulers of him on the earth. How often do you think of yourself that way? But that's what that story teaches us. He created us to be co-rulers over this world with him. Now, man messed up that plan, but God fixed it because he still desires to have a relationship with us. The story of Abraham. He wanted a relationship with Abraham. Abraham's called the friend of God. He wants to be your friend. He wants you to, you think you're friendless? God wants to be your friend. And he wants you to be his friend. He's after you. He wants to bless you. Look at Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country. Leave your relatives. Leave your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. What's he leaving? He's leaving all of his relationships. He's leaving all of his relationships. But God says, I will make you into a great great nation. And what? I will bless you. I will make you famous. Abraham's famous. Everybody in the world knows Abraham. And you will be a blessing to others. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families. That's your family. That's your family. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. See, God desires to have a relationship with you. God desires to bless you. The stories of biblical history, they show us that God desires to bless us. They show God's got a plan for your life. The Old Testament books of history prove that God does have a design in mind for your life and for your family. But if we are going to experience that, if God wants relationship, we must enter into that relationship with him. Relationships are never one way. Relationships are always two ways. 
Relationships are always involved with back and forth. So we must live our lives according to his plan. And we can learn about that as we read the stories of how he interacted with the people of the Old Testament. Psalm 102, verse 27, you are always the same. You will live forever. Hebrews 1.12, you are always the same. You will live forever. The same God that guided Abraham wants to guide you. The same God that blessed Abraham wants to bless you. The same God that had a specific plan for Abraham's life has a specific plan for your life. He was showing that he wanted a relationship with people. In the story of Adam and Eve, in the story of Noah, in the story of Abraham, God told Abraham to leave his homeland, said he would bless him, make him into a great nation. What happens? Abraham gets to the place God showed him and a famine hits the place. But God wants to bless him. So God says, go to Egypt. So he goes to Egypt. When he gets to Egypt, does Abraham trust God? Abraham, the great man of faith, the man God called, the man God's got. No, he doesn't trust God. He says to his wife, tell him, tell him you're my sister. Because he's afraid. Even though God's led him and God's got him, he doesn't trust God. Next, along in the story, we see he's learned how to trust God with all of his options are running out because his nephew has gone along with him, which you learn from that story. Why did Abraham and Lot, as uncle and nephew, have so many problems? Because Lot wasn't supposed to go. What did the verse we just read say? Abraham, leave your family and you go. Leave your family and you go. And then what does it say? Lot went with him. You got to learn some of this stuff from the story. Lot wasn't supposed to go. And so when they grew and Abraham had a lot of flocks and herds and Lot had a lot of flocks and herds, there wasn't enough grass to feed all the flocks and herds. But after Abraham messed up not trusting God when he said, tell him you're my sister instead of my wife, later on in the story, Abraham says to Lot, you choose which direction to go. Well, Lot's the younger guy. He doesn't have the full faith and confidence and trust in God yet, so he goes to the grassy field. And Abraham, fully trusting completely in God, goes to the rocky ground. And we all know that Lot ends up living in Sodom and Gomorrah and gets all messed up there and loses his family and loses his wife and everything happens. But Abraham learns to trust God. The stories teach us how we can learn to trust God, how we can have a relationship with God. We need to learn from it. We need to learn from the story of Moses, learn from the stories of the prophets. We can also learn from their ungodly behavior. David got his eye on another woman. David was the king. She had no power. Bathsheba was just a subject. When the king says, come, you come. When the king says, do this, you do this. And David took her while her husband was fighting a war. He's the soldier off in battle, and the king, the commander-in-chief, steals his wife. She gets pregnant through the relationship. There's a lot of R-rated stories in the Bible. She gets pregnant from the relationship. And so, and so David calls the soldier back home. Go home, go home, go home, go home. This soldier, this man, you're right, he is so honorable, he will not go home and spend the night with his wife because his buddies are not able to do it. His buddies are off. David can't get him to go home so that he can lie. He can denounce the kid. He can say the kid's not mine. The kid is theirs. But the guy doesn't do it. So David sends him back. And he, and he sends a message to the general leading the army. He says, press the battle. Press the battle to the wall and put Uriah at the front. David commands that they have a loss. David commands that this man be killed in battle. And, and Joab sent the message back. It's done. And many, many were lost. David becomes a mass murderer. And he thinks, aha, got away with it. Bathsheba goes through a period of mourning, calls her in, they get married, and so now she's pregnant. Everybody thinks it's by David. Nobody's counting days, weeks, or months, I guess, because they just, they just go on, and they think David's like, got out of that one. Boy, am I smart. Boy, am I good. I can commit big sins, and nobody notices. And the prophet Nathan comes in, and the prophet Nathan tells David this little story. Stories, stories prophet nathan says oh there's this guy's only got one sheep and it's more like a pet he's not raising it for food or livestock it's just like a pet he has it in the house he lets it eat at the table with him and everything and his neighbor's got all kinds of sheep and that neighbor has all kinds of friends come in but instead of slaughtering one of his sheep to to give a feast to the neighbors he, he goes over the fence and he steals that guy's one pet sheep and he slaughters it and he offers it what do you think should be done david and david said we should bring that man in right now we need to kill that man and nathan goes <clears throat> 
It's you. You're the man. The Bible says he said, you're the man. And he wasn't saying, you the man. (laughs) That's not how he was saying it. And can you imagine after Nathan knew everything David done, how scared he was to say that to the king? Nervous? Stuttering? You're the man. But the Bible tells us David repented. And David was forgiven. But that story also teaches us, if you do big sins, can you be forgiven? Yes. If you do big sins, you still face the consequences of those sins? Yes. You'll still live with the consequences of those sins. Nathan said, God honors your repentance. He forgives you. But the sword, the sword will never depart from your house. And the baby will die. And the baby died. David went on to have more kids. And he had one son that raped one of his daughters. And because of that, another one of his sons murdered that son. And then another one of his sons led a rebellion against him. And David had to flee the city of Jerusalem. And in the battle that ensued, that son was killed hanging from a tree. Was David forgiven? Yeah. I've heard all kinds of examples through the years when, when guys sin big, sins like that. It's like, well, just, just forgive him and let him go on. You know, God did that for David. But David paid a steep price in the consequences of his sins for the rest of his life should we learn from these old testament stories we had better learn from these old testament stories but like some of us were sharing out in the lobby before service just now we try to teach our kids some things and our kids don't pay no attention to us they just have to go on and do it the hard way learn things the hard way and they don't learn by us teaching them they have to learn by making the mistakes i hate that don't you hate that except when i think back and realize i did the same thing I did the same thing. Folks, I appeal to you. Get to know these Old Testament stories and learn from the stories. That's why they're here. Don't make the same mistakes. Then there's the story of Ahab. Ahab became king of Israel. Did you know that the nation of Israel was built on private property ownership? Much like the United States of America, it's, it's not like this everywhere in the world. Where we can buy a piece of property. You might have half an acre. You might have a quarter of an acre. You might have your own house. You might be paying a mortgage on it. You might have 12 acres. You might have 20 acres. But we can own our own property. It was like that in Israel. They own their own property. But King Ahab, he married a wife from another nation. God wasn't racist. God is not racist. God told the Israelites not to marry people from other nations because they worshiped other gods. They had babies and sacrificed their babies into a fire to other gods. God said, I I don't want that false worship corrupting you. I love you. It wasn't a racial issue that he said don't intermarry with other nations. It was not intermarrying with other faiths because it'll destroy you. But Ahab married Jezebel. Not everybody knows the story of Jezebel, but even today when people say she's a Jezebel, they know that's not a nice thing, even if they don't know the story. But the story is she was wicked. She was demonic. She was demon-possessed. And she did exactly what God said people of the other nations would do. She influenced her husband. So Ahab, there was a time he wanted a property. He wanted a piece of property owned by a guy named Naboth. And he goes to Naboth and he says, let me buy your property. Naboth says, no, I like my property. I don't care if you're the king. You can't can't take my property. This is mine. This is my family. It's been passed down to me. I'm going to pass it down to my descendants. This and. And Ahab, being the great mature king that he was, go home, lays in bed and cries. Seriously. <laughs> and Jezebel comes along and says, what's wrong with you today? He won't let me have the property. I wanted to buy Naboth's property, and Naboth just won't sell me his property. And Jezebel says, well, just take it. You're the king, aren't you? Just take it. You're the government. You're the government. You can go in and confiscate whatever property or possessions you want. That's a scary thought, folks. That's a scary thought. But that's what he tried to do. And when he did it, again, the prophet came like he came to David with a pronouncement of God's judgment upon him. But Ahab wasn't like David. Ahab didn't repent. Can we learn from this? It's an illustration of the Eighth Commandment and the Tenth Commandment. The Eighth Commandment is thou shalt not steal. The Tenth Commandment is you shall not covet what belongs to your neighbor. In one fell swoop, Ahab violated the Eighth and the Tenth Commandments both. Because he had neglected the Old Testament. First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul reminds the church about the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, wandering in the wilderness. And then he says in chapter 10, verse 6, these things happen as a warning to us. 
They happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave the evil things as they did. These are warnings. The Old Testament stories are warnings so we won't do the same things. Is this accurate? History, science, archaeology have been confirming the Bible on a regular basis. The, the, the Bible talks about a, a Syrian king by the name of Sargon. And for 2,000 years into the 1920s, nobody could find any evidence anywhere in any archaeological digs about Sargon. So people's conclusion was, it's not true, the Bible's not true, the Bible is just more stories, it's fairy tales, because there is no Sargon. Guess what they discovered in the early 20th century? They found Sargon. They found all kinds of stuff about Sargon confirming the truth of the Bible. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered out there near the Dead Sea and it had many passages of the Bible, many passages of Isaiah, word for word to what we have translated to us today with many other historical passages and the historical books confirm the accuracy of the scriptural books. People doubted whether Daniel existed. People doubted whether Daniel really walked with kings. You can go to a museum in Chicago. I've been there more than once. It's called the Oriental Museum. It's at the University of Chicago campus. There is a bath there. It's probably from, from where the steps are to right here, there's a square about that big. It's called a bath. I guess you could call it a small pool. You could call it a large bath. But it most likely belonged to King Sennacherib of Assyria. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. Sennacherib was the wicked king. Sennacherib's bath has been brought to Chicago. There's also a, there's wall plaques there. And, and, and it says this wall plaque hung in the palace of Sennacherib. I walked past that thing and I thought Daniel probably walked past this very same thing. They're finding stuff on a regular basis that confirms the word of God. There's another museum in Chicago that has artifacts from Mesopotamia from the time of Abraham. And that's what the little paper says. It's from the time of Abraham. A secular, atheistic museum is identifying the father of the Jewish people, the father of the Christian people, the father of the Muslim people, and saying these artifacts are from his time. And I, have, I thought to myself, as I walked by, did, did Abraham eat his cereal out of this bowl? Did Abraham stoke his fire with this stick? Maybe. I don't, I don't know. Recently, a coin was found in a dig because the Bible tells us Isaiah lived at the same time as King Hezekiah, and they were good friends, and they talked a lot. Isaiah was a prophet to the, to the rich and famous, but people have wondered, could they really have been? The, they found a coin recently that proves that Isaiah and Hezekiah lived at the same time, walked in the same hallways of the same building. Again, that's being reported by secular news. It is real, true, reliable history. Daniel recorded that Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon. Historical records say that a guy named Nabonius put his son Belshazzar on the throne and they co-ruled as father and son until they fell to the Persians. Daniel's record is confirmed as a fact. We also need to be aware that sometimes in these stories God was doing something special. He said, I will never destroy the earth by flood ever again. Don't have to worry about that. God was fighting for the Israelites. He supernaturally intervened to win victories for that particular nation state. We need to beware, listen, we need to beware of equating the Old Testament nation of Israel with America. There might be some parallels, and I think there's a lot of parallels and a lot of examples and a lot of things to learn from and things to trust God for, but God does not look on modern-day America as he did the nation of Israel. He doesn't have the same covenant with America as he had with Israel. The more accurate viewpoint is Old Testament Israel is now the church. The Old Testament people of God are now the New Testament people of God in the church because of Jesus. Israel was the bride of God. It, uh, the church is now the bride of Christ. So God fighting for Israel does not mean that God fights for America. He may, but he is not bound to do so by covenant. God is in covenant with the church, and he will fight for you. That's what the, the fighting, for, the, when God intervenes and fights to win victories for the Old Testament nation of Israel, that means he's got a covenant to fight for you. And there's spiritual warfare and spiritual battle, and he'll fight for you. God used Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome to judge Israel, and he can use other nations to judge America if he so chooses. He used other nations to judge his people of Israel. He can use other nations to judge us. So Abraham Lincoln prayed a great prayer. Abraham Lincoln said, let's not pray that God be on our side. 
Let's pray that we're on God's side. Let's pray that we're on God's side. So does your application of the story have to do with a clear moral choice, as in the case of Joseph and Potiphar's wife? And Joseph is working for his boss, and the boss's wife wants to seduce Joseph and wants Joseph to sleep with her. You can make the same application there because what Joseph did is what you need to do. So ask yourself first the question, what was God doing in this story? Secondly, ask this question, is this still something that he can do today, or is this still something that he will do today? God is the hero of the story. Not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, or any of the others. Not Peter, not Paul, not Matthew. God is the hero of the story. It's history is his story. People love heroes. What are the most popular movies today? Superhero movies, right? They are the most popular. They're pulling in the biggest money at the box office, millions and millions and millions of the, the superhero movies. The Avengers, Marvel, Spider-Man, Batman, Superman. Jesus is the God-man. You might laugh at that. That is an actual theological term. That's what the high and mighty educated theologians use. Jesus is the God-man. Fully God, fully man. There's some great heroes in church history. The Apostle Paul, Martin Luther, Francis of Assisi, St. Patrick, Augustine, Amelia, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa. They all believed that this book was true. They followed the God-man. They believed that what he did in the past that's recorded in this book, he could and would do today. It's a mistake to believe any of those people were infallible. They were not. The heroes of the Bible, like we've already seen in David and Abraham, they are not infallible. We read the story of Gideon. Let me tell you something from this story. Listen to this story. We imitate the story of Gideon and we say, well, we're following the Bible. What do we do? We lay out a fleece. Have, how many of you have done it? You've heard some. Well, I laid out a fleece before the Lord. God, if you do this, then I'll know this is the path you want me to take. God, if you do this, I'll know, I'll know then. God, if, you, if this happens, God, I'll know that that's the path that you want me to take. And you'll say, I laid out a fleece before the Lord to get my directions because, because Gideon took out a fleece and he said, God, if you really want me to do this, if you really want me to lead the people in the battle and victory, then, then make all the water around, make all the ground around it wet and the fleece dry. God did it. What did Ezekiel do? Next day he said, okay, God, now I want you to do the opposite thing tonight. I want the fleece to be wet and I want the ground to be dry. I don't know if I got those in the proper order or not, but that's happened one way or the other. And, 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 that's, and so we go, well, we need to lay fleeces out. No, I'm telling you, don't lay a fleece out before the Lord. I don't believe it's biblical to lay a fleece. Well, Gideon was a great man of God. Gideon laid a fleece out before the Lord. No, Gideon was like, do it this way, do it this way, do it this way. Gideon was trying to get out. He was looking, well, if the, if the ground was wet and the fleece was dry, surely it's not going to be the opposite tomorrow night. I don't want to do this. I'm trying to get out of it. But people still, and we do sometimes, we, we lay a fleece out before the Lord. You can do it. I'm just telling you that's weak faith. Hear me. I'm not trying to criticize you. We've all done stuff. But I'm telling you, biblically, if you understand the historical stories, laying out a fleece before God is evidence of a weak faith. God may honor it. God may help you. But God's saying, oh, let's help out the poor kid. Their faith is weak. You say, God, God keeps showing me because I'm not ready to trust you yet. What happens in the, Holy in the New Testament? Anybody in the New Testament laying out fleeces before God? No. What do they do? They fast and pray and the Holy Spirit speaks to them. That's why we want to take a few minutes. So let God speak to you. You don't have to lay out fleeces. Let God speak to you and walk in faith and walk in trust. God narrowed victory, uh, Gideon's army down from 32,000 to 300, and they had just trumpets and empty jars and no swords. But the victory, the victory was won in spite of Gideon, not because of him. <laughs> it was won in spite of Gideon, not because of him. Don't imitate David. Don't believe you can commit adultery and get away with it. Imitate Joseph who ran away. No matter what it cost him. Don't imitate Elijah, who after he saw great miracles, lost his faith and got so depressed he wanted to die. And God said, I still want to use you, but get up and go anoint Elisha because he's going to take your place now. We don't want to imitate that part of the story. Remember, these stories are first and foremost about the people in the stories. They're not about us. They teach us how God deals with people and how he may want to deal with us. But before we can ask what he's saying to us, we must know what he was saying to them. Before we interpret what he wants to do for us, we must understand what he did for them and why. So put every story into the big picture. And the big picture is this. God created man for relationship. Man blew it, and God's trying to restore it. That's what it's all about. 
Don't try to correlate the ten plagues on Egypt to ten problems we have in our lives. Just read a principle that God is sovereign. He's in control. He'll do what he wants. He'll work according to his plan. God blesses obedience. God judges disobedience. These stories are written to show us how God is restoring a relationship between himself and people. They are not just to illustrate general principles. These stories are not written to show us how to have success in business. They are written to show us how God wants to restore a relationship with people. The history books of the Bible are intended to shape our worldview about the eternal plan of God and how he is working that out in human history. He began with the people of Israel and he's continuing now in the church. So ask the question, what does this passage tell me about God? He's the hero. What does this passage tell me about God, his plan, or the role that his people should be playing in the plan? These stories also give us both positive and negative role models. So as you read the stories, ask yourself, what positive or negative model might this passage be setting before me to teach me about trusting God in the midst of the plan? Story of David and Goliath tells us God has a plan and he'll use a little boy to carry it out if he needs to. God's people were paralyzed by fear. 1 Samuel 17, 45, David replied to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you, and I will cut off your head, and then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the bird and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel, and everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. Does that tell us? to go out and chop the head off of everybody who disagrees with us? (laughs) Some Christians behave that way, but no, we're not supposed to chop the heads off everybody. We're to trust God because God wants the whole world to know. We're to act on God's behalf and let God act through us so that the whole world will know. That's God's plan. So the historical books of the Bible tell us God's in control. The stories are an example of how God works with us in teaching us how to live the very best, most productive, most enjoyable life that anyone could ever live. What was God doing in the stories? He's building faith, showing that he's in control, showing he wants relationships with us. Is this still something he can or will do today? Put it all in the big picture. God's restoration business. What does it have to do with that first? What does it have to do with God's big plan? Then what does it have to do with me? God has informed us about the past so that we might have confidence in him in the present and in the future. How many know that sometimes the present can look pretty bleak? It's a struggle sometimes. But remember this, God is never taken by surprise. We're taken by surprise. God's not. We look around and trouble is everywhere. We've got problems we don't know how to fix. We look at these stories time and time and time again. God saved people who were in impossible situations. There's no obstacle too great for our God. So I want you to ask yourself right now, what, what, what trouble is brewing in your life right now? What difficulty are you facing? There's an old song that says, got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. And he will do what no other power can do. That's our God. That's what the Old Testament books of history teach us. Father, thank you, Lord, for teaching us today. Thank you, Lord, for the stories. Help us, I pray, by your Holy Spirit to be drawn back to the stories. Lord, that we might hear what you have to say, that we might learn what you want us to learn. God, give us a great, great, great hunger for your word, I pray. With our heads bowed and with our eyes closed today, I just want to encourage you both here in the house as well as watching online, if you feel right now like there is any separation at all in your relationship with God, I just want you to call out to Him right now. Just like David, whatever your sin is, you can be forgiven. And God will even help you through the natural consequences that come. God God did help David. He had to face consequences. And they were hard, hard consequences. But God was with him. God was with him. It would have been even worse if God wasn't with him if he hadn't repented. So if you have a need to repent today, and repent means to turn around. Repent means to be sorry for what you have done to separate yourself from God. Right now, whether it's for the first time or the first time in a long time, you can just say, God, I believe in your son, Jesus. Jesus, I believe you're the God man. And I have sinned. Someone could point the finger at you and say, you are the man, you are the woman. The Holy Spirit is doing that now. Just say, I'm sorry. Forgive me of my sins. Be with me in the future. Trust God. 
If you're placing that trust in him right now, let us know on that connection card in the handout or let us know in the, in the comments or in the message on the stream. We love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Speak your word to us. May your word be powerful to us, Lord. May we be hungry, hungry, hungry for your holy word. Let's stand together if we can. Thank you, Jesus. I'd like a couple of couple of guys to come for our communion baskets and just stand up here at the front. One stand on this side, one stand on that side. I would like to invite you to come and take the bread and take the cup and maybe some of you would like to even stay around the altars either standing or kneeling maybe maybe you'd like to go back to your seat but i would like i would like you to come forward as we worship the lord and take a bread and a cup and then as after we've all been served we will partake together david just stay up here if you would and i'm going to ask the people to come forward come forward come forward and receive let's worship the lord worship team can come back if you like this is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. Your holy presence living in me. This is my the Old Testament. You don't understand the New Testament story of communion without understanding the Old Testament story of Passover. And the bread in the tabernacle in the temple, the place where the Old Testament people went to worship, the bread there was called the bread of the presence. It was there to remind them of the presence of God and the priest would eat it as a symbol of taking the very presence of God into his life. And so Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he passed it around and he said this bread is my body what was he saying he was saying i am the god that the bread of presence of the old tabernacle talked about and now you are priests so you can partake of the bread of the presence a priest doesn't have to partake of it on behalf for you you can take it 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 didn't blow the disciples' minds because at that point they didn't comprehend it. But when the Holy Spirit enlightened their minds after the resurrection, it blew their minds. That by taking the bread in, they are taking God himself, the presence of God, into their lives. So as we take this bread today, as Jesus commanded us, let's remember that we are priests. We have the privilege. Nobody needs to do it on our behalf. We can take the very presence of the God-man into our lives. Let's take the bread together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your presence, Lord. 
thank you for your presence, Lord. And that story of the Old Testament Passover also tells us that a lamb was slaughtered and the blood of the lamb was put on the doorposts and the thresholds of the homes so that they would escape the judgment of God. And Jesus passed the cup around and he said, this cup is my blood. This is a new covenant now. That was the old covenant, but there's a new covenant and it's my blood. And if you will take his blood, if you will apply his blood to your life, you will also escape the judgment that God is going to bring. Father, we thank you for the promise of escape from judgment when we put our faith in you. And it's an expression right now of our faith in Jesus' blood that we receive this cup and we take your promise of protection and freedom and deliverance into our lives in Jesus' name. Let's take the cup. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your presence, Lord. Thank you for your power, Lord. Thank you for your forgiveness, Lord. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your desire to have a relationship with us, Jesus. Praise the Lord. If the prayer team members would take their positions, if you have a need today, come. Come and receive prayer for whatever need you might have. The same God that worked in the lives of those Old Testament stories, He wants to work in your life. The same God that heard their prayers, He wants to hear your prayers. The same God that spoke to them and gave them direction wants to speak to you and give you direction. So come. Come to the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the God of this world, the God of this universe. Come to Him and receive and receive prayer today, we pray. Thank you, Lord. of God. The prayer team's going to stick around here at the front today. If you need prayer, feel free to come.